Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Retirement is supposed to mean you don't have to work anymore, or at least only work because you want to. Your main question is how much income is enough for you to retire? Here with some answers, federal retiree Abe Grungold of AB Financial Services. And, I mean, how much you need depends on a lot of things, doesn't it, Abe? Tom, it really does. It varies from person to person and whether you're married or single. But it's funny, even when I've been retired now for two years, my wife will still ask me, do we have enough money to retire on? And really the goal for every individual should be at a minimum 80% of your pre-retirement income. So it should be 80% of your gross. That is a good number to start with. Yeah, so that means the type of life you can have in retirement is, unless you're really, really good at investing and saving, will be in some relation to how you lived while you were working. Exactly. You know, if you could pay your bills now based on your salary, and you should be able to pay your bills in retirement, Now, it's also important and it also depends on your lifestyle because when we retire, we spend more and a big factor is your health. The other factor that you really have to consider is how much debt are you going to carry with you into retirement? And that's crucial. Maybe it's more crucial how much debt you're willing to carry into the grave because then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Yes. Unfortunately, a lot of people like to buy large ticket items when they retire, a retirement home, motorcycle. Now you're talking. A boat. That's fine. That's great. It's wonderful. But you have to make sure that is within your budget and you should be starting your budget for retirement five years prior to retiring. You should get in the habit of seeing on a monthly basis how much are you making, how much are you spending, and will you have enough income in retirement? And these numbers, these income numbers would be coming from your FERS annuity. It'd be coming from Social Security, your thrift saving plan, your personal savings, and if you want to, uh, employment in retirement. Right. Some people choose to do some work in retirement, but it should be something you choose to do, maybe not something you have to do. People, it's very important in retirement to be active, both mentally and physically. And a lot of uh, federal retirees do a part-time job in retirement just to keep them active mentally and physically. Now, I know a lot of people, a lot of co-workers, clients of mine who had a desk job in the government. They don't want to be sitting at a desk in retirement. They want to do something physically active. And a great job is a school crossing guard. It's a part-time job. You're out there physically walking around. You're doing something good for the community. And you're also earning some part-time income. So these are important things for a lot of retirees to do. Yeah, for that matter, even if the income is slight, you could probably volunteer in jobs similar to that. Yes, for, for those 
retirees who really do not have to worry about their financial income, volunteering is very important. I do a lot of volunteering uh, in addition to my business, and it really uh, helps me feel good about myself. And uh, it's an excellent way to give back to the community. It's a, it's a great way. Well, you're definitely the type of person I would want to referee my pickleball tournament. <laughs> I would be more than fear, Tom. More if I, than fear, but I don't know. My eyesight is not as good as it once was. <laughs> <laughs> well, my pickleball is not existent at all. I've never touched one. And getting back to that budget idea, doing a detailed budget over a period of time can also maybe show up areas where you could probably cut back. A little bit without really harming your lifestyle. Yes, there are many ways that you can cut back. You know, you have to really think about your spending. Like, if you still have cable, maybe you ought to think about doing some uh, streaming services, which are much less than the cable service. If you have a home telephone, Maybe it's something you don't need anymore in retirement. You can just rely on your cell phone. You have to take a look at your insurance, auto insurance, life insurance, and see whether it's a good idea to shop around. These are great ways to save an extra few hundred dollars here and there, and they add up quickly. They do. We're speaking with Abe Grungold. He's retired federal manager himself and owner of AB Financial Services out of Florida. And you said start thinking about this five years in advance. I mean, most people probably don't think about it till about six months to go and they wake up and say, holy jumping Jehoshaphat, what am I going to do here? Yes, really. You should be thinking about it five years ahead of time. You should be looking to see where that retirement income stream is going to come from what your expenses are going to look like in retirement, and you really need to focus on this five years ahead of time and have a good plan going into retirement. Now, the the thing that's also very important when you are calculating these numbers are what I call the unknown factors when you retire. The unknown factors are health care, long-term care, grandchildren, and inflation. So if you want to provide for your grandchildren, where is that money going to come in your budget? If you know you have to deal with health care issues, and we most people do when they retire, you have to have an emergency fund to handle medicines, uh, medical procedures, and you have to always think about inflation. And the other factor, which everyone may or may not have to deal with, is long-term care. And that is very expensive. That can be anywhere from seventy-five to well over $100,000 a year to be in a nursing home. Very expensive situation. Right. And if you have any assets whatsoever, above a couple of thousand bucks or something beyond your home, then you will not be eligible for Medicaid. 
God forbid, which will cover a nursing home. It's basically the provider of last resort. Yes. The Medicaid, in order to qualify for Medicaid, you really have to be in a low-income situation. And when you go to a nursing home, they're going to want a very detailed listing of all your assets, and they want to be sure that you can pay the nursing home bills, whether they're going to come from your personal savings, from your TSP, or whether you're going to be a Medicaid-eligible uh, uh, resident. So you really have to think about all these things ahead of time. Right. And for purposes of Medicaid, you can't say, oh, gosh, I'm going to give away everything to the grandkids now and then a month later become on Medicaid because they have a five-year, I believe it is, yeah. look back, right? Yes, they definitely have that five-year look back, and they will carefully look at all those things. State has a lot of resources where they can look to see when you transferred your house to your children and when you transferred uh, your assets to your children. Now, that situation did happen with my own parents. They did it 20 years prior to them going into a nursing home and both my parents did end up in a nursing home so that situation was taken care of long before and it was something that they thought of it wasn't something that i approached them with so uh you know you really have to think of these things it's unfortunately but you do and you also have to plan not only for your health care costs but also for your minimum required withdrawal from your TSP. Now, they keep moving the goalposts on when that has to occur. I think it's now, if I'm correct, 72 or 72 and a half years old. Congress moved it up. Yes. The age is going to change over the next few years, depending on how old you are. It can be 73, and a few years later, it can be even a higher age. But yes, you do have to make required minimum distributions. Now, the TSP is going to help you make those required minimum distributions. And if you have your money sitting in a company like Fidelity or Charles Schwab, they also will help you to figure out what those numbers are. Basically, they're about 3% of your total balance. So if you have a traditional IRA, a traditional TSP, it will be about 3% of your balance. So, yes, that so, money will have to come out. And that's the number then you plug into your monthly income is at roughly 3% of your balance, and that's going to vary depending on the market and so on. And what about tax planning? Because that's another bugaboo that people sometimes overlook. You're going to be in a different income bracket, perhaps, and you'll have different deductions and so on. Well, Tom, you know, what I always tell everyone is I don't mind paying taxes, because if I'm paying taxes, I'm financially doing very well. But yes, when you retire as a federal retiree, you should be in a lower income tax bracket. And you need to plan for taxes by diverting your funds where you can avoid paying taxes on money that's sitting in the bank. You could buy savings bonds. You can do other measures to avoid paying taxes, but you do have to pay taxes. You could be in a tax bracket of anywhere from 15% all the way up to 30%. 
And I honestly don't mind paying taxes because I know financially I am doing better than uh, a lot of people out there, and I don't mind paying my taxes. Of course, you didn't stay in New Jersey or New York. I mean, you are in Florida, so people like paying taxes, but they like buying. They like paying less than paying more if it's if they have that option. Well, that's good tax planning on my part. Yeah, I do avoid the state income tax in Florida, and there are a number of states across the U.S. where you do not have to pay state income tax. And federal retirees do move to those states. And that is just part of tax planning. But unfortunately, a lot of people can't move away from their families. So I have many neighbors who live here in Florida. They've been here one or two years, and now they're moving back up north because they can't be away from their family. So that is a decision that you have to make. What's more important, your family and friends? Or tax planning. Or whether so, you can afford a fractional Learjet and go back and forth anytime you want. <laughs> That's true. That is true. But, you know, snowbirds, it's it's a difficult situation today because snowbirds have to maintain two properties. And that is a very expensive undertaking in retirement. That is something you have to plan for five years prior to retiring. Can you afford to carry two properties? And uh, it's a difficult uh, scenario. All right. So the main message then is plan. Plan for health care, plan for tax planning, plan for gifts, and plan for your own income and your own way of life. There's an old expression, Tom, proper planning prevents poor performance. And if you are planning your retirement income and expenses and the unknowns, Prior to retirement, you're going to have uh, an excellent retirement. You're going to have very little stress, and you're going to be able to enjoy yourself. And, yeah, planning is the key. Abe Grungold is a retired federal manager and owner of AB Financial Services. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me on. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. 
So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, 
What did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including 
um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much.
I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.